could all um, stand. We'll read um, in John, starting in verse 45, 11, verse 45, and read through chapter 12, verse 19. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the, na- for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. But this he, sa- he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus, did, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? Will he not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointing the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you will have with you always. But me you will not have always. Not a great, now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The next day a great multitude that had had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they had heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You may be seated. Good morning. Hopefully you have your Bible open to John's Gospel. We'll be looking primarily at 11 and 12, what Michael just read this morning. And uh, excited to see, as we see on the board here, uh, there are several responses to the coming King in the passage of Scripture. We're going to go through some of those responses. And this is not just an exercise in seeing what the responses are, but I pray today as the Word is preached, as we look to the Word that we attentively listen and see from Scripture what these responses are and ask of the Lord, Lord, are any of these responses my responses to this King that I proclaim? Okay? Let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you for giving to us your word. We thank you for revealing to us the things that we need to know for this life and for the life to come. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we thank you, Lord, for the plan of salvation, for saving us, for redeeming us, for adopting us into your family. We thank you for the cross and the empty tomb, for the hope that we now have in Jesus Christ. And we read the scriptures and we see the many expectations, mixed expectations about the king's coming. And yet this king is very clear about his expectations in coming to earth. The Bible is clear about his expectations for coming again one day. So Lord, I pray that you would take what you've made clear about Jesus and plant those truths firmly within us. You are the giver of good gifts, sure promises, and great expectations. May we not get distracted here. But instead, may we look forward to the arrival Of this king, your son. I pray we would eagerly await this savior. That we would hold the line on who this king is. And why he's coming back. Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand on solid ground. Sound doctrine. Steady truth. As we await your arrival. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Over 22 years ago now, in the month of February, I remember a most triumphal entry. She's smiling. She has no idea I'm going this route. But I couldn't help but remember this triumphal entry. All of you men in here, 
perhaps recall that same triumphal entry when you saw your bride making her way down the aisle escorted by her father and I remember that when the music played all the people stood up all eyes including mine were on the bride as she makes her way down the aisle When I think about a triumphal entry, I'm reminded of that day. And I'm also reminded of the expectations and and the plans and the dreams and the hopes and all of what goes into that moment. Reminded about the new chapter in our lives that was about to begin. You know, that triumphal entry lasted for a brief time. The wedding day, all the plans, all the details, the reception happened, it it, it ended, the guests went home. What became of the triumphal entry? See, that entry lasted for a moment, but the marriage is intended to last how long, church? A lifetime. The entry is is the joining together of the man and the woman. The point where the father gives the woman to be united with the man. And the hope in marriage is that the triumphal entry leads to a triumphal marriage. Two lives lived out together as one in Christ. Listen, a triumphal marriage will be a marriage that endures and perseveres all the way to the end. You probably remember hearing some of those, maybe some of you repeated these very words, for better, for worse, in sickness, in health. In the good days, in the days that don't seem so good. In the joy-filled times, And even in the tragic times. All the way to the end. You see, a triumphal entry brings with it, does it not, certain expectations. A triumphal entry brings with it certain responses. Expectations, responses. Jesus, in the text, is riding into Jerusalem the week of the cross. What we're reading about here in John 12 takes place on a Sunday. And if we go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is called that Good Friday. And I hope, church, we understand why it's called a Good Friday. I want you to see that we are just days removed from the cross. This triumphal entry, as recorded to us in the scripture, happens just a few days before Jesus goes to the cross. All eyes are on the king as he enters into the holy city. The volume is up. The crowd is buzzing. The religious leaders are chomping at the bit to get their hands on this man named Jesus. Jesus is coming into town. Not unexpectedly, mind you. In fact, if you read Matthew's account of this, you see in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, 
this is the latest of the three that he records about what's going to happen to Jesus. And in Matthew 20, 17 and 19, it says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, okay, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and he said to them, listen to what he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. What are we going to do there? And the Son of Man, that's his reference to himself, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Now he's been telling his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem. And he's also told them multiple times what's going to happen in Jerusalem. It's going to end, guys, in death by crucifixion. But three days later, I'm going to rise again. So headed toward Jerusalem, death by crucifixion is coming. And I'm sure for these guys, they're thinking, crucifixion is for a criminal. And yet this master of theirs, the one who called them to follow him some three years ago now, he says he's going to be raised to life on the third day. So it's coming into Jerusalem. It's expected. He's talked about it. It comes as no surprise that as we get to John chapter 12, that he's coming to Jerusalem. This is not a surprise visit. A triumphal entry. Just the word itself, triumph, triumphal, descriptor of the entry. You think of something that's triumphant, something that's full of joy, something full of excitement, enthusiasm, victory. And on this occasion, the text presents us with a triumphal entry of the king of kings. All four gospel writers speak about his entry into Jerusalem. And each one gives a little bit different perspective. Each one writes with an expectation of what follows the triumphal entry of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. You see, each writer unveils the other side of the triumphal entry. The cross, the grave, the empty tomb. The gospel writers understood, moved by the Holy Spirit, they understood the path of the triumphal entry. They knew where it led. And yet what we read here in John 12... Even the end of John 11 that was read earlier for us. It seems like what we have here before us is a mixed bag of expectations about why Jesus is coming. There seems to be this wide disparity of response pertaining to the king who's now riding into Jerusalem. I want to show you the, the responses and the expectations of the people at this time. I want you to listen as we go through these. I want you to listen for yourself and ask, where are the hearts of the people as the king rides into Jerusalem? I want you to think through, where's Jesus' heart as he rides into Jerusalem? 
And I want you to think about, even yet this morning, where's your heart toward Jesus Christ this morning? What's your response to him in the present? As you read the text, this is not an exercise in pointing a finger at others. As we go through the responses and we see the different people with their different responses and go, oh, they didn't get it right, they didn't get it right, they didn't get it right. No, no, no. That's not what this is all about today. Instead, ask of the Lord where your own heart is toward Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to put his finger on the state of your heart as we work through the disparity of responses from those in John 11 and 12. Here's the first response I want us to look at this morning. We're just going to call it the Easily swayed response. The easily swayed response. We see this response from the multitude. Look at verses 12 and 13 of John chapter 12. The next day a great multitude, there it is, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, by the way, just as a side note, interesting note about Palm Sunday. A couple things need to be noted here about Palm Sunday. First of all, Palm Sunday is not about the palms. It's about Christ. Okay? Secondly, just as a matter of a side note and tension to the text, John is the only gospel writer who actually comes out and tells us that these branches were from palm trees. You read the other gospel accounts and they say leafy, palm, leafy branches. John actually tells us they were palm branches. That's where we get this idea and understanding. When people talk about Palm Sunday, we can trace it back. John's gospel actually tells us the branches that they pulled were from palm trees. Okay? That's what we see here. They took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, and cried out, Hosanna! Save now! This idea of salvation now! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. The king of Israel. Now it's sort of dangerous in the midst of Jerusalem to be shouting about the king of Israel in reference to a man in the flesh right here riding on a donkey. Would you agree? A little little dangerous to be shouting those, those words. Even more dangerous to be receiving those words. <laughs> To be the recipient and to say, you're okay with those words. Well, this is the feast crowd. The easily swayed crowd. This is the feast crowd. The bulk of the crowd gathered. Uh, Josephus, a historian, first century historian. He estimated that there were some three million people gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Three million people. That's quite a large number of people, isn't it? This is the group who heard the word of the testimony from those who witnessed Jesus. If you look at John 12, 17 and 18, the people who were with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb back in chapter 11 and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. 
So this crowd had heard the news of what Jesus has just recently done in raising Lazarus, who was in the grave. How many days, church? Four days. This was a big deal. Talk about a buzz. If there was a social network of the day, this would have been the top item trending. It would have been there. Number one, what Jesus did. Everybody knew, everybody heard about what Jesus had done. And so this multitude goes out to meet Jesus because of what they'd heard about him. And I believe the majority of the great multitude in John 12, verse 12, are the Jews coming into town for the Passover feast. And they knew about Jesus. They'd heard of Jesus. Some of them perhaps had seen Jesus, depending on where they were and where Jesus was. Jesus didn't travel an all, a whole lot out of the, uh, his particular area during his days. But not unheard of to think that some of the people had actually seen him, not just heard about him. But you see, this crowd, this great multitude, is, is a mixed bag of folks. And the crowd generated a large amount of enthusiasm when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. They, they took these palm branches and they went out to meet Jesus and lining the way they're shouting these words Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the king of Israel and the words sound so good the words are so right on point we all sitting here today would agree with these words these are words worthy of our Lord and yet as oftentimes is the case when a crowd comes together the meaning behind the voices is hollow. The words seem to be used in large part without understanding. I was reading this week in a commentary that spoke to this particular point. And I'll read his words because they're very well put and I think apply here to the situation Talking about the entry, says the people went wild. They were sure their liberation from Rome was at hand. While the crowd correctly saw Jesus as the fulfillment of these prophecies, they did not understand where Jesus' kingship would lead him. The people were praising God for giving them a king. They had the wrong idea about Jesus. They expected him to be a national leader who would restore their nation to its former glory. Thus they were deaf to the words of the prophets and blind to Jesus' real mission. When it became apparent that Jesus was not going to fulfill their hopes, many people would turn against him and a similar crowd would cry out, crucify him, when Jesus stood on trial a few days later. Listen to these words. It takes more than participation at a praise gathering to be a true friend and follower of Jesus. It takes more than participation at a praise gathering to be a true friend and follower of Jesus. You see, the crowd is oftentimes a fickle group of people, easily swayed, pliable. You know the character pliable. Oh, that sounds good over here. And then when I get over here and someone else tells me something, oh, that sounds good too.
I took the boys not too long ago. We went to uh, a, a basketball tournament in Branson, Missouri. And it was interesting. While we were sitting there, um, one of the things that they tend to do, there's, there's some local elementary schools nearby. And for a time, they bring in the students and they sit them up in the upper part of the gymnasium. And they comprise a pretty large number of, of young people. I would say a couple hundred young people are sitting in the, uh, in the stands. And they're there just watching, and some of them brought their lunches, and they're, they're spending some time there during their uh, lunch, lunch hour. Well, they're neutral fans. They really don't know, probably many of them, who's playing the game. But what I found interesting is I was watching. When one of the teams had a guy who came in and just, boom, slam dunked it. Do you know what happened with those couple hundred young people up in the stands? All of a sudden, they start cheering. For this team. Now they don't know who's on this team. They don't have any idea who's on this team. But they liked what they saw. And they started cheering. They started, oh, I mean, it was clapping and defense. I mean, everything for this team. That's the crowd kind of response. It's the kind of response that, that may not know this Jesus, but boy, I like what I heard, and everybody else seems to be doing it, and well, I don't think it's going to hurt anything. I can say, Hosanna. Is this how you treat Jesus? Does your excitement about him rise and fall based on what you hear about him? It's, it's sort of like the retreat conference mentality of praising him. You know what that is, don't you? Where we're lifting up his name in the midst of, of a crowd of others gathered for worship. It's pretty easy to do that, isn't it? Even as we gather here as believers, it's hopefully a pretty easy thing to do to, to worship the name of the Lord, to exalt his name together as a body of Christ. But when the conference is over... Is your excitement, is your enthusiasm, is your passion, is your love, is that abundant joy, is it gone once the crowd disperses? If you notice in the text and you read the text, you see that after his triumphal entry, the crowd disperses. He goes back home at the end of the day. Probably nearby Bethany. What happens? Does, does your heart response to Jesus go up and down on a regular basis? Does it fluctuate between hot and cold depending upon the crowd that you run with? Are you easily swayed in terms of a response about Jesus? Uh, let me give you another response from the text. This is what I call the, 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 the accomplice response. The accomplice. This is the response of, of the people. We see this in 17 and 18. The, the people in general, it says, therefore, the people, what people? The people who were with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. That's backwards in John chapter 11, okay? And, and that's why I wanted to start the reading in verse 45. Many of the Jews who had come to Mary, there were many Jews who came alongside Mary when Lazarus died. They were coming alongside her to comfort her. And so many of the Jews who came to comfort Mary, and they'd seen the things that Jesus did, 
believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that they did. I want you to notice the difference between those two groups of people at the tomb of Lazarus. Many saw and believed. Some went away to whom? Pharisees. And told them... Can I, can I just add that? To the t- they told them what Jesus did. Many of the Jews who witnessed Lazarus raised from the grave believed in Jesus, but some. That's the response I want to have you consider for a moment. Some. Instead of being easily pliable and swayed by the crowd, some people... Respond to Jesus with a hard heart. Just flat out hard heart. They may not verbally make known their displeasure with Jesus, but their responses to Jesus speak volumes. In fact, their response alters things completely. In this case, I want you to see where their response leads. Look at the text, starting in verse 47. They go tell the Pharisees what Jesus did. What happens? Look at what happens as a result of this kind of response. The chief priests, Pharisees, gathered a council. Uh Uh-oh. They gathered a council. What shall we do? What are we going to do? This man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And on and on and go. And Kaiva stands up and we'll talk a little bit more about this response from the Pharisees in just a moment. Verse 53 says, From that day on they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. They come up with a plan in the council of what to do about this man, Jesus. We can presume that the command in verse 57 of John 11, the command says both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command. Where'd the command come from? Probably from the gathering, the council. If if any of you see Jesus, let us know because we want to seize him. see, the accomplice response, it seems, it might seem harmless at first. Telling someone what you've seen. Sounds harmless. But both parties saw the same incident. Talking about Lazarus being raised. Many believed in Jesus, but some went away to tell the Pharisees. What do you suppose they thought might happen when they told the Pharisees? Why would they go and tell the Pharisees? Don't you think there's some kind of motivation going on there behind the scenes? It's like the guy who robs the bank. The guy who robs the bank is responsible, is he not, for his actions. But so is the guy who helps them. Right? The guy waiting in the getaway car seems somewhat harmless. He's just sitting there. But he's helping the wrong team. 
He's at work to rescue the guy who's robbing the bank. You see, the accomplice response, when do you think about this one? Is this being exhibited in your life toward Jesus? Are you helping the wrong team by way of your actions? Do your words betray the one that you proclaim? For those not in Christ, you might think that you're off the hook, remaining indifferent here. Walking in the darkness, though, profaning the name of Jesus, these responses are never okay with the Lord and with his word. How tragic it is, though, when the church, the redeemed community of called out ones, when the church offers up an accomplice response to Jesus. The church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth, a follower of Jesus, abiding in him, walking in the light, walking in love, walking in wisdom. Are you taking sides with the enemy? That's this kind of response. Are you spreading lies? Are you causing dissension? Are you sowing discord among the brethren? By the way, the Bible says God hates those things. Are you practicing lies? Does your life and words match the ways of the world? Are you spending your best energies working for the enemy or for the king of kings? Let's look at the next response. This is a lack of understanding response. A lack of understanding response. This comes right from the text. And this is in reference to the disciples. Look at verse 16. So his disciples did not understand these things at first. Who didn't understand them? His own disciples. Uh, We're talking about a mixed bag of responses here. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, that's a key part of the, the, the passage here. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him. What things? The scripture, the prophecy. And that they had done these things to him. Done what things? Shouted praises to him. Lined the streets with palm trees, put coats, their coats and their garments down before him, treated him as royalty. Why were they doing this? The disciples didn't understand these things at first. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him. You see, when Jesus was glorified, the disciples thought differently about things, didn't they? John's gospel gives us this detail about certain events in the life of the disciples. They didn't quite grasp an understanding of something in the moment, perhaps. But after Jesus was glorified, then it all made sense. After he was glorified, then they understood the scriptures. And that's exactly what Luke says in his gospel, chapter 24. At the end of Luke's gospel, 
44 and 45. Then Jesus says to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me, Jesus says. And listen to what he says here. This is, this is the summary statement, verse 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the what? Scriptures. He opened their understanding. Jesus could do that. He's God. He's about to leave, though. But before he leaves, he opens their understanding that they might now comprehend the Scriptures. You see, here in John 12, it says that the disciples didn't understand what these Scriptures meant at first. Later on, however, after Jesus was glorified, they understood. They got it. And they also realized why the people were placing palm branches out on the ground before Jesus, making way for the coming king of Israel. They got it then, but missed it in the moment. Have you ever been there? Have you ever missed it? Missed something in the moment? That was the disciples. A lack of understanding. I would ask you this morning to consider whether this is your response to Jesus. And think about it this way. See, before Jesus left, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. After he left, he sent his promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit's ministry church is illuminating our minds to understand this word. Think about it this way. The, the lack of understanding response can still come from the disciple of Jesus. Sadly. <laughs> Notice this is not a lack of knowledge. This is understanding. The Spirit in you gives you understanding from the text. The Spirit grants understanding of a passage. He gives us insight into a text. The Spirit provides wisdom and understanding for what you read in the Bible if you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you are what's described as a natural man. A natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit. They are spiritually discerned, Paul says in Corinthians 2 and 3. So if you lack understanding today on the scriptures, what does that say? Because remember, we are on the other side of the cross. Are we not? Christ has ascended. Christ has been glorified. Spirit has come. The problem, listen, the problem's never God. We get a wrong response. It's not because God messed up. It's not because God did something and kept me from doing then what I needed to do. The problem's never the Spirit of God. The problem is, is never a lack of understanding form because the Bible is just, well, in certain parts, it's just not quite right. And that's not the Bible's fault either. The lack of understanding response is always due to a man problem. I use that both ways. Man, woman, young, old, right? The Bible calls us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, to lean not on our own what? Understanding. See how often we get ourselves into trouble when we're leaning on our own understanding, our own understanding. A lack of understanding could be a lack of discipline perhaps in our lives. You don't understand because you haven't disciplined yourself to understand what the word has to say. 
Could be because you're, you're practicing right now a life of sin. And for some of you, you like it. You like it that way. You're content with it that way. You're okay with life going on as it is. Forsaking the Lord, forsaking his ways, a lack of desire, a lack of want to, to crack open God's word. A lack of fervency to walk in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A lack of understanding the power of the scriptures in our lives. See, the disciples were on the front end of the cross. We're on the back side of the cross. Holy Spirit has come. Power has been given. Wisdom and understanding is now ours for the taking. Praise God for his ability to discern and understand the scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit. What a tragic thing to have a lack of understanding response. Here's a fourth response. A hypocritical response. And you probably already know who these folks are. It's, it's fairly evident in the text, not just in John 12 and 11, but in the whole of the Gospels. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, right, of the day. The hypocritical response. Verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I like what J.C. Ryle says here, just as a note on, on this last verse. That because there were so many people in Jerusalem in this day, at Passover time, that, it, that this comment very well would have been appropriated in that way. It seemed like the whole world was in Jerusalem. The whole world's going after him. Well, this is the response of the religious folks. Elsewhere we see in, in Luke 19, 39, a comment by the religious leaders when people are praising the name of Jesus and they come down with, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. These are the religious leaders. Matthew's account in chapter 21, 15, and 16. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David! They were indignant. Could I, could I, you mean, you just picture what that is. They were indignant. Can you see someone whose eyes, is, eyes are like bulging and smoke coming? Indignant, steaming, hot, angry. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus is like, yeah. I mean, I'm picturing Jesus responding and sort of just like, yeah, haven't you ever heard? Haven't you read? Come on. You're the religious leaders. Surely you've read out of the mouth of babes and infants. You've perfected praise. If you flip backwards in John chapter 12, you see in 10 and 11, I, I, I just, I don't know, I, I laugh sometimes when I read verse 10. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. I would say, he just, they want to put him to death again. He died, and now they want to kill him again. Why? 
Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. You see, they were so upset and furious and envious of, of Lazarus. I mean, what, what all this stirred up, because a lot of the people were going to Jesus, and they were losing their control. See, they were all about control. They wanted to manipulate. They wanted to have power over people. And so this deal with Lazarus, just was a, this was a big, big deal. Sometimes we don't maybe consider the triumphal entry connected to the events of Lazarus, but they're very much connected in the text. What was bothering the religious leaders of the day when Jesus came riding into town, receiving the praise and honor of men? Here's what was bothering them. They wanted that praise. They wanted it. They wanted the honor. And they were willing to do whatever it took to remove this man Jesus, to rid themselves of the Christ. The one who at this time was turning the heads of the whole world. Now these are the same folks that Jesus warns in Matthew 23. You remember those, that, that line, woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites. He says it like seven times. It's a pretty stinging passage. You know, like actors on a stage. That's the idea of a hypocrite. Donning the mask back in the day, they would put a mask up. Right? They played the hypocrite. Pretenders. You remember they wore those phylacteries those, and they'd dangle these little things from their arms and have them hanging down here. And, and all, it was all a show. It all looked good. They were all about looking good, wearing them nice long robes and making everything look nice. And they sat in all the right seats and all the people were paying them honor and they loved it. Just a few chapters later in John... Just to give you another picture of this hypocrisy. Uh, Chapter 18, actually, in verse 28, we read these words. They, the religious religious leaders, they led Jesus. This is the early morning trial, right? The quote-unquote trial. Wasn't a trial. They led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. And it was early morning. But listen to this. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Huh? They're concerned about that? Let's get this straight. They're okay handing Jesus over to be crucified, an innocent man who went through a series of illegal trials. They're on the verge of killing Jesus, But here they are before Pilate, not willing to enter into the praetorium for fear of being defiled. They're concerned about defiling themselves and not being able to eat of the Passover meal. Think about the hypocritical response here. As we consider this, is the hypocritical response a familiar response on your end? Are you quick to point a a finger of blame, to to take up a mask yourself, to to pretend? Is is Jesus to you simply another party for another mask? You have your family mask, the one you wear at home amongst your family members. You have 
your workplace mask. You have your online social media mask. You have your church crowd mask. When Jesus comes up, are you quick to put on the mask that makes it appear as though you are following this man Jesus? Now listen, the mask is intended to cover up. It's intended to hide. In theater, the mask is a prop. It's something that gets put on for a time to play the role of a particular character. The mask isn't intended to be permanent in the theater. It's possible that some have gotten so used to the church mask, the Jesus mask, that they've worn the mask so much, it becomes who they are. Listen, when that happens, you have a life of imitation. You are a pretender. You are a fake. As we sit here this morning, you probably have had conversations with some people that maybe you would label fake. You know what I'm talking about. People who say right words, and they know the right words, but there is zero going on right here. That's a hypocritical response. Your face and your heart are saying two different things. Read Matthew 23 when you get a chance. Listen to what Jesus says about the Pharisees and ask of the Lord if this hypocritical response is coming from you. Here's the last response, and we're done. It's a God centered response. God centered response. This is what we're after, church. Who exhibits that in this text? Jesus. Jesus does. He's making plans for the Passover. We could go into the details of all that. Matthew gives us a great account of how he tells his two disciples to go and and get the donkey. And if somebody there says, hey, what are you doing? Says, the Lord has need of it. So they go. And the guy says, hey, what are you doing? And they say, "Um, the Lord has need of it. Okay. Sort of odd, isn't it? When you read that passage, sort of an odd thing. But does it not speak to the the sovereignty of our Lord? He, He knows, but also speaks to, you know what? He needs something right now. He needs something. As a side note here, I was, I, was, I was intrigued by that part of the, the, the passage. And I was wondering to myself and wondering for us as a church, when the Lord has need of something, how willing are you to give it up? You think about your own life. There are some things the Lord has given to you. There are some things the Lord has blessed you with. Do you willingly give those things up for the Lord? If the Lord has need of something in your life, are you willing to let, let it go? He says, hey, go, go get this colt. We also see why he goes. Why does he do this? What's his need? His need is to get this donkey. Why? The Bible is pretty clear. Matthew 21, 4 says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Jesus is fulfilling scripture, church. When you read the gospels, is that not what he's doing? 
like time and time and time again. Read Matthew's account in particular. Matthew's going to give you, that's his focus. He talks about Jesus as king, but he's a, he's a king who is all about fulfilling the prophecies. This is no different. What is that prophecy? It comes from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. By the way, that's what was going on in Jerusalem. They were rejoicing greatly. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. There was a whole bunch of shouting happening on Palm Sunday. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's the prophecy. Written some 500 years before it actually happened. Isn't that amazing? Jesus fulfilled it on that day as he rides in on that Sunday, just a few days removed from the cross. Hey, go get that, go get that donkey for me. I need that, I need that donkey. I need it so that I can fulfill the scripture. Luke 19, 41 says, as he drew near. Here's another piece of this that I want you to see about a God-centered response. As he drew near the city, he saw the city. You remember what he did? He wept over it. And Luke is all about, as he's talking about Jesus, Luke's all about the humanity of Jesus. Luke is all about giving us a picture of Jesus from a compassion standpoint. And here he is riding into town. And before he gets into town, he stops. You get the picture, he stops. He looks over the city and he weeps. Why does he weep? If you had known the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, the days are going to come when the enemies will build an embankment around you. He's talking about a destruction to come to Jerusalem. And it's going to happen, he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You never knew me. (laughs) He's weeping. Luke 19, verse 40, gives us another picture of a God-centered response from Jesus. And this is on the heels of the Pharisees saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I love this because this God-centered response is one of worship. You see, Jesus understood that we were here. He's made us to worship him. We are to respond to Jesus with worship. He made us, he put us here to worship him, to give him glory, to give him honor. A God-centered response is inclined to carry out the will of the Father. You see, you read John's gospel and you see the pattern in his gospel is to recount Jesus' activity in terms of doing the will of the Father. His work was to do the will of the Father. You read John and you can't miss Jesus' response. He's not only God in the flesh, but purposeful to do what the Father says to say what the Father has given him to say and to accomplish the very things the Father has for him. In John 17, 4, in that prayer, before he goes to the cross, he says, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I finished. I'm ready. Just two chapters later, Jesus is on the cross. John 19, 30, he receives the wine and he says those words, tetelestai, right? It is finished. It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 4, 7. I've fought the good fight. I have finished 
I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. You see, the triumphal entry charts the path for what's to come. And here's the paradox of the scriptures. It's right here, the paradox. It's it's sort of hard to grasp, hard to understand for a lot of folks. Here's the paradox. Triumph includes suffering. It includes the cross. It has shame and humiliation attached to it. And for many followers of Jesus, triumph as victory doesn't include suffering, doesn't include death, and surely not a cross. So we have the easily swayed response, the accomplice response, the lack of understanding response, and the hypocritical response. None of these responses, church, lead to triumph in the end. They lead you elsewhere. And the text calls for a God-centered response, a humble, sacrificial, heavenward response that includes the cross. It includes suffering. It includes, listen, being hated for the name of Jesus. There are a lot of people who hate Jesus. And there are a lot of people who want to respond in a hypocritical fashion when, when they hear that people hate Jesus, well, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want them to think about, uh, I don't want them to think that about me. Do you love him or not? What's your response to the king riding on a donkey into Jerusalem? We're reading about here in John 12. Know that while Jesus came some 2,000 years ago now, he's coming back again. He's not going to be riding on a lowly donkey this next time. When he comes the second time, he will come on the clouds with the angels, a trumpet shout. All the world will know he's coming. It's going to be evident. And when he returns, what's your response to Jesus going to be? That's what's going to matter. Your response to Jesus. I pray when he comes, he finds us faithful all the way to the end. His triumph at the cross is our triumph in this day. Paul says it this way, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the truth that you've given to us in your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who hold the line, who stand firm upon your truth as you've given it to us from your word. That our lives would be lived out in such a way that wherever we may be, whatever we're doing, we would be people who respond in a God-centered way. We think about what you would want. We think about how to please you. We think, in fact, just like Jesus was thinking during his days here on earth. He was always consumed, always thinking about what the Father would want. May we be a people who have those same thoughts, who are always aware and thinking of what you would desire for us. How might we please you, God? Lord, where we've given some of these responses on the board that are leading us in a different direction, away from the triumph that we spoke of. I pray, Lord, we would be quick to repent of our sin, that we would be quick to turn to you in faith, 
trusting in you with all of our heart, leaning not on our own understanding. Father, that our lives would be characteristic of carrying out works befitting a repentant life. So, Father, I pray that you would move us as a church, that we would walk in this way together, that we would together have a God-centered response to others, to those we come in contact with, to even those here in the body, that as we talk and have conversations, they would be centered on what you want for us, what you desire for us, that our words would be Christ-like, our motives and our actions and our thoughts, that we would exhort one another to these kind of things as we walk here on earth. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Uphold us by that truth. And regardless of what comes, Lord, I pray that all the way to the end we would be found faithful. And in doing so, we would triumph. We've read about a triumphal entry. But I pray that the triumphal entry reminds us about the day of triumph to come. And that we, right now, in Christ, we are more than conquerors. We are victorious. We are triumphant because of what Christ has done for us at the cross. We must not, cannot leave out the cross. And we're so grateful that in just a few days in the scripture, we see that that Good Friday is coming upon us, Lord. And I pray we'd be reminded once again and renewed once again of what the cross is all about, what it accomplished and what it did, what it paid for on our end and how now we're to live as a result and as, as a result of the cross and its power in our lives. It's foolishness to the world, but it's the power of God for salvation for those of us who believe. We thank you for that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.